Our bodies, our temples are something I'm really passionate about. Um, often that teaching, what's common is it's used in the sense of like, don't get tattoos, don't have ear, extra ear piercings, that kind of stuff. Um, I think it can create an unhealthy narrative that this idea that like um, your body is important because of the way that it looks. Um, and so I like to draw the comparison of temples are, in, are not important because they are pretty. That's is kind of irrelevant. We do it because um, it's a way of respect. Um, and but ultimately, I say like mud and ash and tar could rain down from the sky, and the exteriors of temples could be completely tarnished, and they would be no less sacred. Temples are sacred because they house sacred ordinances. Um, our bodies, our temples, they are sacred not because of the way they look, but because of what they house, spirit children of God and, you know, the spirit of God. Hey everyone, welcome to This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff Openshaw, your founder and host. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us this week. We got a great show for you, a bit of a hybrid of news and interview, all sorts of terrific things happening. Before we get to that, I, of course, want to uh, encourage you to go to thisweekinmormons.com, where you can read all of our various blog posts and interesting things we have going on and listen to this podcast. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, and I know there are many of you because I see many of you listen on the website, which is great. But if you're a mobile person or whatever, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, please get us on there. Please hit that subscribe button. Help us along the way. Uh, and we also hope you'll follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Be part of the discussion. It's good times. I am very, very happy to be joined this week by previous guest of the show, but we haven't seen her for a while. Rosie Card is here. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. How are you? I'm doing super, super well. Uh, we last had you on... What was it? Like the fall of 2018 or something like that? You did some news with me and Devin. Oh, yeah. I think it would have been when my book came out. So, yeah, about it was around two, maybe close to three years ago. Yeah. And you've been uh, you've been pretty busy in that time, I think, just going after a number of cool projects. But for, for anyone who doesn't know you, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself. Give us the elevator pitch of who is Rosie Card and why, yeah, so- why, why do you matter? No, I'm just why- <laughs> I matter because I'm a person. Yes, um, yes, my yes. name is Rosie Card, and I am the founder of QNOR, which started as an LDS temple dress company, but has since expanded to just a clothing women's wear company as well. Um, I do is all that, sorts of things on social media. Yeah. Is that name for like Queen Noor of fame? Yeah, so there's Jordanian. a Queen Noor. She's yeah. a former queen of Jordan, and yeah. she is an incredible person, wonderful person to study. Um, but it means it, the Q stands for queen of light because I, the, the, sorry, the Q stands for queen. Okay. Nor is a very common female name in the Middle East, but it um, means light. So Q Nor stands for queen of light. I like that. Yeah. Kind of in like a reformed Egyptian type of way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's some good like bangles right there. What? Yeah. And you and you did. Are you still doing the Q More podcast that you were working on? 
as yeah, well? Yeah, so we did um, a couple of years ago. I had a podcast called Q More, standing for like question more. Yeah. Um, it was super successful, so great. Um, but I mean, you know, podcasts take a lot of work, and and the way that we were doing it, especially, took a lot of work. So it's been on a bit of a hiatus. But one of my goals is to bring it back this year. So I'm really excited about that. You you were doing great things with that. You and you hit yeah. you hit the ground with that too. I remember when that came out, and I've seldom seen so many like iTunes reviews and traction just like out the gate. So good for you. Yeah, we, we had a really great team working on it. So hopefully, we can pull that back together. That was a good show. And um, didn't you run for city council at some point? I swear, I just we've been Facebook <laughs> friends for a couple of years. I thought I saw a, a yard sign in my feed at some point, but I don't think it was like this cycle. It was at some. Yeah, no, it was. Um... Uh, just over a year ago, I feel like. So not this most recent summer, but the summer prior. Yes, I ran for city council. Um, some neighbors approached me and just said, hey, this is the situation um, with the opening. These are the people that are running. We feel like you would do a great job. And I was like, well, let me think about it a little. And they're like, okay, well, the deadline to kind of sign up is tomorrow. To file, so yeah. It's think quickly. Um, <laughs> and so... That's I ran and it was super last minute and and a fascinating learning experience campaigning that summer. Um, didn't make it through the primaries. There were three of us running, so we had a primary. Um, but yeah, I mean, I campaigning. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it is. It's a monster. It's something. Yes, when I was when I was nine years old, I ran to be the activities coordinator at my elementary school and it was a i was actually run out oh no when i was nine i was was 10 either way i was basically run out of office i was run out of the city i made what they claim to be false promises vending machines no even worse i grew up in orange county california northern orange county um and so i said things like here are some ideas for things we could do and i said like backstage tours of disneyland this is just an idea why not they took that to me and it was a campaign promise and disneyland loomed large in our psyche we all grew up like it was 15 minutes away it was like kind of a it was like a little playground for everybody that didn't materialize and it turns out there were many people disappointed in my performance uh for not providing them with these incredible i probably said something like pepsi and the drinking fountains you know the classic stuff yeah i didn't do as well yeah. I I, th- I think I got I still won the election, but then I failed and I changed schools the next year. So thankfully, you still live where you live. Do you think you'll uh, run for office again? Uh, one day, I think that would be a wonderful way to serve and be involved. But um, I also have a lot of respect for the offices and think it's important to be properly prepared to serve. Um, and so, yeah, one day as I prepare. One day more. That sounds good. Well, we've got a, a fun hybrid show this week, right? We're getting into, we're going to, we've got a book out that you've just put out called House of Light, Your Guide to the Temple. I think it's terrific. I don't want to encourage all of our listeners to go get it. We'll have a link to it with this episode. Um, but I guess before we get to that, though, let's tease it a little bit. There is, There has been some news, of course. There's always news every week. Um, and goodness, I never know where to start on any given week because there are always so many interesting things that happen. I will I will lead off with one of them that good old Fox 13 from Utah decided to get into. Fox 13 investigates how the LDS church made $6 billion in the pandemic. That's a beautiful headline because it lacks any kind of context whatsoever. And the fact that it's investigates, I think just insinuates that something 
shady as a foot. They figured something out. But what we have found out, one thing we don't realize is ever since for the past year or so, we've talked about the Ensign Peak Advisors, the church's large investment portfolio. Um, the church only started issuing quarterly reports for this a year ago. So we have no other data to work against, right? Only the past year's worth of data. But it's kind of cool. Now we can contrast what's happened in that time. And so according to the latest filing with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, the church did make $6.2 billion, uh, finishing the year with $44 billion. Most of this, they say during the pandemic, it's synonymous with 2020 in many instances. Uh, but essentially, it's just because the church owned a lot of Amazon and Tesla shares. And that's really seems to have been what surged. That's a lot of Amazon shares to improve by that much. But obviously, Amazon had uh, quite a year. I think there are many people who uh, do not love Jeff Bezos for continuing to make money hand over fist, even though he's retiring. But Amazon made a lot of money, and that helped the church's uh, portfolio. They made about $650 million just from Amazon without changing the number of shares uh, at all. So I don't think this is a huge issue for the church. There is a 2019 quote from President uh, or Bishop uh, Gerald Cousset, who said it's about building a reserve fund for the church, you know, for church purposes, preparing for the future. And I do think this is the time when any of us can snarkily say, what has 2020 been, if not a, ne- right. a time when we've needed to prepare <laughs> for the future? Like, this is good. I'm glad the church has smart financial managers. And really, that means we have $6 billion more billion to use for things. But again, it calls into question, are we are we going to use them for anything? Like, are, are we investing? using it? Yeah. yeah. Are, and what, like, are, are we using it for things that like, I mean, that's always the most important thing, right? Like uh, taking care of the poor, the needy. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? I I don't know what like what's the point like not the point by meaning like where is that I don't want to call it a red line but at what point do they say okay we've got a lot of these funds we need to divest of some of them and actually take the money and use it in the community because I think yeah. we can make the excuse for a long time like we're trying to build this up we're building this up and like do we just build it up until the second coming when it's rendered moot like how like when how long do we build it up I don't know yeah and I feel like uh, there's kind of scriptures about like <laughs> at some point I mean aren't there scriptures that say kind of like um, what am I trying to think? That like the I don't I don't think there's scriptures to support accumulating mass piles of wealth. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that uh, you know we should try to do as much as we can, which we do. I mean, we have other stories going on that the church donated three hundred thousand to children to the Children's Justice Center, right. and we are always getting things from newsroom about you know donating you know, money to homelessness and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think in relation to how much we have, 300,000, not a lot. It's a drop in the bucket. It, I mean, it is about of an eyelash. I mean, so, it is. I'm, I'm just yeah. going to come back to the thing I keep saying, like, why can't we have paid janitors? I just, I'm, I'm past the point. I, I don't, Maybe this is a faith problem for me, right? But I know the reason why they got rid of him back in, what was that, the late 80s, early 90s when they ditched custodians, at least in the United States. We do have paid cleaners in other parts of the world because we're trying to create jobs in like developing countries and give them employment. So who's to say people don't need jobs now, especially during a pandemic? But No, seriously, I, like there could be, I mean, even like people who aren't able to pay tithing, but they want to contribute, if that could be a way that they could donate their time. I read a really interesting article just this morning about, um, oh, where, where was it? Um, by, um, by common consent about the, how families are struggling um, to support oh. themselves. 
Um, you mean the one about the the house, like the housing crunch and everything too? I, yeah. I read, I read that as well. I didn't put it on this because I didn't think we'd get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting. And then, and one thing that I've always thought about, and of course, we don't need to get into a discussion of all the millions of things that the church could use their billions of dollars on. But <laughs> yeah, come on, Salt Lake, listen to us. Listen to me. But uh, I like, I mean, the housing issue, childcare. I mean, if we could support mothers and parents with childcare um, because most families, both people have to work um, and, you know, paying for childcare is like paying for a college tuition. Um, and then I'm also just, I'm really partial to like, we should have a um, fertility fund that if, you know, IVF should be something that families can go and get support that would from be the church. Because we teach that it's the most important thing, right? To have children, but not everyone can just have children. So I think being able to support them and that would be wonderful. And this calls to mind, I'm, I'm not going to name these well, but you know how instead of having health insurance, there's some of these, like especially amongst religious c- communities, they have sort of this own commune. I forgot there's a term oh, yeah, for you it. Like, forget- you like pay in, you pay in what you can and then your stuff gets covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. I got to think about what that's called. I'm looking it up right now. You know what I'm talking about? Like we could we could pull off one of those. What's that called though? Oh, this is actually just giving me Christian health ministries. I don't want that. But you know, it's called health sharing. It's usually something like that, just health sharing. Mm-hmm. We could do health sharing at a oh, church yeah. level. That could be fun. Uh, yeah. But then they get, it gets into thorny issues like does the church want, I mean, even going would back to- Would they cover the, birth control? That's exactly. my question. <laughs> things, things, that's exactly. That's what I mean. Things with Obamacare, like would they cover birth control? It's, that's would they cover birth control? Uh, you, you did mention that article by Common Consent, and I thought that was really interesting. And I've talked a, a few weeks ago on the show, I mentioned that my home stake in Southern California was disorganized just about a, four or five weeks ago. Um, they, it means they it stopped being a stake. It was discontinued. The stake was discontinued, They and they reorganized some units and then moved the units into different stakes. They basically took three stakes in Northern Orange County and took my stake that had five remaining wards, gave one of the wards to a neighboring stake, took the other four wards, consolidated them into two wards, and then gave them to the other stake, and then renamed that whole stake a new stake. This happens sometimes in the church. It happens. But that by common consent article really hints at the issue surrounding that because people, there's a major affordability problem that we have right now. Um, Uh I think think Utah is seeing it big time right now. I mean, it's great that you've got the booming economy in Utah and all the tech jobs and all these great things are happening. But a quick Zillow search on Utah will show you how much these McMansions you used to be able to buy over in Lehigh used to cost three or four hundred thousand dollars, and now they're six or seven hundred thousand dollars easily, right? And uh, that's just one example. But like Utah's getting really expensive, and I think when it hits the core of the membership base of the church, you know, like the Wasatch Front, like then what happens? Because we're already seeing it elsewhere where members just cannot afford to have they can't have young families in their ranks because they cannot afford it because they cannot they're stretched too thin in so many ways. Like if women are supposed to be at home. With kids, how do they have enough money to make it work? It's really hard. I mean, I live here in DC, and when I lived closer to the district, most of the moms were also working moms, and that was mostly by choice. But it's also the reality of it because there, you buy, you know, a bungalow costs one point two million dollars anywhere close to the to the district, right? So, yeah. Well, no and, and Natalie Brown is the author of this article that we're oh. talking about, and she talks about like how, I mean, motherhood can be so isolating mm-hmm. in general. Um, but what happens when you are like becoming truly isolated also in the sense that like you have no peers in your general area because no one can afford to stay 
stay in that area. Um, and I mean, she talks about one challenge for the church is that like, who, because of how we are set up with, you know, members serving in different callings, when the majority of the ward is aging and you have no young families to kind of carry the ward, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And it's like, exactly. It's like, what do you do? Because sometimes you can only move. And, and the problem is you move farther and farther away to make it to where it's more affordable, but the job centers still aren't there. So then you're dealing with lengthy commutes, which takes away from time you might have to serve or to do other things. And it's like, I think it's like a major issue and it doesn't just affect Latter-day Saints, of course. But I think when we have a structure, but I think when our structure is one that your ward is defined by where you live, that, that does make a difference because that becomes a big part of your community. And if, you know, like you're suggesting, if you can't, if you have no peers where you live, why do you want to live there? Why do you, or do you want to be just one of many who jumps ship and goes somewhere else where all of your peers are? It's, it's tough and it, it takes away balance. I mean, it's sad for me to see it in California. When I grew up, we had well-balanced wards, tons of primary, tons of youth, you know, very robust programs across the board. And then I'm not surprised what happened to my home stake because when I go home to visit, I feel like my mom's old ward is like a branch now, mm-hmm. you know, there's like a far fewer people, fewer of everyone. And that's because no one's moving in. They can't afford to be there. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, these are major issues that are going to affect us. I'm glad we talked about this one. We're going to, uh, we're going to link to it up on the website. I think it's a great, great, great article. Yeah. Another great, did a great job. Um, I'm also going to get into another one for, uh, where'd that go? Let's stick with by common consent for the time being. Carolyn Homer also published an article about accomplishing God's work of leading out against prejudice. And she uses that language very clearly because apparently there's been this concept of leading out as in like we have, we naturally have these positive traits within us. Let us lead the world by example. We can lead out as examples of love, lead out in decency, lead out for morality, lead out for righteousness. These are, this is an expression that's been used by a lot of different church leaders over the years. But what are we actually doing to lead out when it comes to working against prejudice. And I'd say the main thesis in this really good piece, it's pretty long. We're not going to get into every little part of it. But the main idea is we've seen an increase in language during general conference or elsewhere, decrying prejudice, uh, decrying white nationalism, whatever it might be. But are we taking any steps beyond that? Are we programmatically, are we doing anything? Are our lessons being altered to talk about that? Are we having lessons on these subject matters? And why aren't church leaders being more like direct? I mean, you can find examples a million times over about, and some of them are at this point, you know, Mormon folklore, right? But, you know, like examples of law of chastity, a couple did not obey it and their lives were ended or whatever has you. There's always these, she mentions the old quote from uh, President Kimball, that one where he talked to that, especially back in the seventies was before the priesthood ban was even lifted. But it was when they said like a couple was only married civilly and then they got in a car accident and died. And like now they oh can't be together. Gosh, and now they can't be together forever. All of us. Like yes, that, that one. <laughs> Like we have these examples, but we don't have anyone like going dead on about having an actual like an- like anti-racism lessons in church. I think that's a fair point. I, I do think we're working harder. You know, we're-, we're happy to publicize our partnership with the NAACP on a lot of fronts, for example. But and we have our pro-refugee campaign where we publicly support a much more family-centric immigration policy in the United States, for example. Um, so we do do some things, but I like that she says, frankly, quote, frankly, it's hard to teach our members to embrace diverse strangers when so much of our messaging revolves around judging, quote, Babylonian lifestyles, which I think is a, it's a good point because inclusivity is dwarfed by our discussions on like modesty, pornography, the word of wisdom, sex, whatever it may be. So 
I think well, this is a cool piece Well, and also just like the kind of my observation is the vague language can be interpreted by anyone to be supportive yeah. of any cause. Um, and so I just feel like we vague, you know, statements here and there, um, or even less vague, kind of fall on deaf ears of those that really need to hear it, right? Like mm -hmm. the people who really need that, um, there just needs to be more. Because you can say like racism is bad and everyone, most people are going to say, yeah, well, I'm not a racist. You know, like we're, yes. we've been learning that this summer as, you know, more and more people are getting involved in anti-racism work that it's not enough just to say, well, I'm not a racist because everyone claims to not be a racist, but we all have mm -hmm. racism inside of us. You can't grow up in America and not have racist tendencies. Um, and so that's why it's so important to do the work of anti-racism. And I see very little anti-racism action from the church. So I think that, I think that's a very, very good point. And, and just calling out like, then what is, it's one thing to say exactly. Don't be a racist. And none of us think we're racist. So we need to go a step farther and actually have someone explain to us the things that are happening that are racist. Even if we Racism doesn't have to mean you have bad intent. That's a crucial thing about it, right? It, racism can mean you just have, you have pre-existing notions about something. You might not realize it. And I think the BLM protests this summer and other things have showed us that. Um, well, and especially considering how recent it was that in our Come Follow Me manual, we had some very racist preachings that were printed. Do you remember when that happened? It would have been. Oh, the, the accidental ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they yeah like, <laughs> just like. <laughs> Forgot about that. It was just, I mean, it was just a year ago, I think. Yeah. That happened. And they released like a statement saying, you know, use the online version, not the printed version. Um, but I think it's easy to see, like, we still have this problem as of a year ago in our printed manuals we need more. We got to be doing more to be more accountable for this stuff. Yeah, yes, we do. I mean, this even goes as far as I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago, and I think it still stands that we still have a couple of manuals that exist online. They haven't been disavowed or anything. They might not be highlighted, but they exist that essentially tell you that interracial marriage is wrong. And I know that the church doesn't actually preach that, especially this day and age. I mean, now we'll, our their media people will show interracial couples, for example, right? I mean, right. I know that is not what the church actually believes in it at all. I know that. But the problem remains that we ha keep things up on a website that say otherwise. And yeah. if we're going out of our way to show, if you go into the Gospel Library app, and when you look for the handbook and you see handbooks one and two have that giant um, watermark plastered on them that just says, you know, outdated or deprecated, whatever it is, like, do not use these. They're not, they don't matter anymore. Why don't we have any of these sorts of disclaimers on some articles that might, might yeah, say this is useful the at the time? The unfortunate thing is that people weaponize those types of things, right? They yeah. they will still go and say, well, it's still on the church's website um, and throw that in people's faces. And yeah, I mean, I've done, I've gone to meetings with the church talking about this kind of stuff and just said like, there needs to be some kind of highlight that says this is outdated. This is, this does not yeah, align with the church's current stance. Because if it's on the website and it's with the logo, who's to say, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's like the Disney Plus approach, you know? You watch all these things on Disney Plus now. If you watch Lady and the Tramp and it says, this contains some outdated and blat frankly racist uh, depictions, we're leaving it here because it's the film, but just so you know. Yeah. I don't know why we can't do something similar. Yeah. And that, by the way, that's this is an aside. 
I've noticed that on some, I don't know if you watch much Disney plus Rosie, but of course I do because I have young children and it's fun, but uh, they, they've noted this in a lot of films. Like if you watch Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Dumbo, any of these movies that have some kind of uneasy racial moments in them. They've also since updated the zone. There's kids profiles on Disney plus, which you have on many of the streaming services, but now they've made it. So if anything has that disclaimer, they just don't even show up, which might be a step too far in my opinion. I think like that literally means that on top of them not showing PG movies, so my kids can't find Finding Dory on their account, for example, they also can't find Lady and the Tramp because of that. I should also be concerned that those are like my son's favorites, Lady and the Tramp, Peter Pan. If you watch Peter Pan nowadays, the way they depict Native Americans, oh my gosh, Bad. it is deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. I know we. I know that sometimes we can't like look at everything through our modern day lens, but it's still like, well, we're still watching the movie. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's still something still, we're consuming. It has an influence you know? on us, yeah. so... Yeah. So check out Carolyn's article. I, it's one of my favorites I've read in the past few weeks. I think she's done some uh, excellent stuff there. Any any stories that you want to jump on, Rosie? Anything anything you, you're loving here before we pivot? Well, I mean, we the extermination order it. thing, or what do you think I should talk about? I was going to say you should talk about Robert Kirby retiring because I think that makes you really sad and oh. you want to tell the people... <laughs> All about your, okay, you can talk about the extermination order. No, we can talk about Robert Kirby. Um, yeah, Robert Kirby from this trip is retiring, which I was reading up on. I didn't know he started kind of incognito because he was a police officer. That I did was not very, know that either. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Um, Robert Kirby, I'm not super devastated to see him go. <laughs> I'm just going to say every time I see his headlines, I just feel like every ward has a Sunday school where there is a Robert Kirby raising his hand and making comments. And I just, I haven't you, missed, I haven't just, missed that over the You put your year. face in your hands and you're just like, um, oh, here we go. Him. I have to wonder, I mean, he retired. He's probably seems like he's of age to retire. At the same time, this is coming off the heels of a handful of recent columns that have gotten him a lot of flack. So yeah. I choose to believe he's genuinely retiring. But after the one where he was making fun of, uh, of Dr. Jill Biden and all yeah. that from only like two or three weeks ago, I have to wonder if maybe the, if Trib uh, editors maybe gently nudged him out of the way and said, it's time to take your golden parachute. I'm sure that parachute from the trip is huge. The most <laughs> golden of parachutes. Oh, I yeah. I mean, I just think, I don't, I don't think it's a, his voice is very unique, you know, like it just, it feels pretty tired and not super f- fresh perspectives. And it kind of feels like, okay, we've dealt with this type of humor and these comments from his age group, white male for a while. And it's, I think it's time for a fresh perspective. Go away, boomers. We're tired of you ruining everything for all of us. <laughs> My gosh. Uh, what was it about the extermination order? What, what happened with that? Oh, so it, there's an article about the extermination order saying it's one of the saddest moments in Missouri history, which we did some little research and found out that we're thinking that about 17 people were victims of this extermination order. Um Oh, they said saddest moment of American political history, which is interesting to have that highlighted. I'm not sure if I feel like it's fair to say one of the saddest moments. It's a sad moment for sure, but we've had a lot of things that have lasted a lot longer and, you know, cost us a lot more deaths. Um, But we were talking about that 
um, Boggs was shot through a window by possibly. Allegedly. I don't want to get allegedly, sued. Allegedly. 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 Don't, don't the, you don't want the sentence of Porter Rockwell coming after you. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Who's you, you've got to have disclaimers you. everywhere. Let's just say just in case. I would love to know who's going to sue in the name of Porter Rockwell. Um, allegedly, it was Porter Rockwell who he was tried for it, according to this article, but acquitted. So well, there we go. That was interesting. an interesting one. Okay, we got a couple of other interesting bits here. Uh, quick temple reopening news. You know, every week this is changing. We're still moving a couple into phase three. The upside here is there's a number of temples that hit pause in operations, kind of when we were going into Christmas because things were accelerating a lot. Uh, thankfully, they're able to open up a few more of those. Uh, so real quick though, the phase three ones, phase three as a reminder, means that the temples can reopen for proxy work, which they haven't done since they closed last March. So you got Guatemala City, Guatemala, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Merida, Mexico, Oaxaca, Mexico, Tuchla, 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 I don't know, Mexico, and Sydney, Australia. There we go. Um, also, uh, phase two will be the Tijuana, Mexico temple, and then those resuming operations that have been paused. This is good news, mostly California, but Bogota, Colombia, then Fresno, LA, Newport Beach, Oakland, Redland, Sacramento, San Diego, all of California, keeping the Golden State very, very happy. I'm sure Gavin Newsom lovers will be pleased. He's a very popular governor right now. It's a very exciting time uh, for California. So it's happening, folks. We got 14 in phase three, 119 in phase two, 13 in phase one. 13 are paused. One is still closed entirely, not even paused. It's never, ever reopened. And uh, eight, of course, are shut down for major renovations, including mine here in DC, even though it's been done since September, but it's just sitting there. I don't want to get into like a mask, anti-mask conversation, but like, no. I hope masks in temples continue to be a thing. Like I just have been thinking about like in like the, even I, after the pandemic's gone yeah, symbolically like you want masks on Esther in memory of 2020 let's keep wearing in memory <laughs> it'll, keep, it'll, it'll keep us humble forever no I just have been thinking about like times where I've gone to the temple in the past with a cough and just like sitting there in this closed environment with a lot of elderly people coughing and just have been like oh my gosh that was so rude of me. First of all, I probably just won't go when I'm sick. Yeah, but I love idea. the idea of like, just if you are and you have to be there, just that masks can become kind of just a sign of respect. So like, oh, I'm, I want to protect you people from what I may have. So I'm going to wear a mask. That could be a broader cultural thing in general too, even outside of the pandemic. Like, like sure, in my life, when I've had a cold, I haven't taken much of an issue of going out and about and minding my business. And obviously, if I know I'm going to sneeze or cough, I keep my distance, you know, cough yeah. on my, my arm and all that kind of stuff. But who's to say it can't be like, if you're a little sick, just wear your mask out just to be polite. And that's, that's, what, fine. that's that, what people do in Japan. I mean, that's why that's what I mean. they've been wearing masks for years and it's not because they're tr like scared of what other people are going to give them. It's strictly a sign of like, I want to protect you from what I may have. And I love that. It is seem proactive, but it's also a little bit of a scarlet letter situation. You know, everyone's going to look at you. They're going to know you're sick. And there's some people who are going to know it's really a Mark of Cain kind of situation, obviously. <laughs> um, so who's to say? Who's to say? I'm with you. Why not wear them? It works for, if it works for Asia, why can't it work for us in North yeah. America? Come on. A uh, couple of other quick ones. They released a rendering for the Syracuse, Utah Temple. They announced the location some time ago, but now we know what it's going to look like. It's kind of like an afterthought. They added it to an article from 
a while ago about the groundbreaking for the Bentonville, Arkansas Temple and the McAllen, Texas Temples, which both broke ground like last fall. And then for some reason, they've just chucked on to that article from four months ago, the image of the Syracuse, Utah Temple. Uh, it looks like your typical 80 odd thousand square foot, three-story Utah Temple. I think this one's not going to be the square style of like Orem and Taylorsville, more the long with the steeple in the front style, like uh, like Layton nearby or you know the Rome Temple or ones like that. It uh, has no Moroni, no shocker there. Looks kind of modern. You know what I've it's, been thinking about? Like it has no Moroni. Yeah. Is he, what a, is he totally phased out now? Do we think? I think he's, uh, um, and I'm sorry, many listeners, this is a, a long topic I've been at for a while. I think he's pretty much phased out. I mean, they replaced him on the gospel library app. He's not there anymore. The only thing I think is interesting is the church is still producing at the church level, some content here and there. If they talk about the temple, especially for kids or whatever, and it'll still show like the Moroni on top of a temple to help us think about the temple. Mm-hmm. So they're still producing some content that calls that to mind, but it's painfully obvious we are deliberately leaving Moroni off of the temples from here on out. It's interesting to see like the difference between um, kind of like these smaller Utah temples that are essentially are starting to look kind of like glorified chapels. Um are there any small ones in Utah? Though? All these new ones they're announcing are like eighty thousand plus square feet. They're all they're huge. <laughs> I they're huge. Maybe I shouldn't be the judge on what's bigger. You small. Utahns. <laughs> they're so small. No, but you know they. But then compare them to like the Rome Temple or temples in other countries where they mirror the local or like historical architecture, and they're so stunning. It's very like it's interesting that contrast. Really? I don't know you might be interested. Like, we don't you might have be interested a lot of- in the uh I should send you the Twim Temple Awards that we actually did earlier in the year where where we had everyone vote fault listeners voted on the uh the renderings released for forthcoming temples like they released 25 <laughs> renderings in 2020 but across a lot of different areas and ca- a lot of categories like best modern temple best smaller temple one that most accurately reflects local architecture yeah i do think yeah i think we do that i think with utah it's a bit hit and miss but i also don't know like what's the local architecture of syracuse isn't it just like tracked houses and shopping centers i mean that that <laughs> so they maybe are doing it spot they're on. getting it right like we used to joke about <laughs> having a temple in Layton years ago and we'd always for the thumbnail deliberately use a picture of like the Layton hills mall yeah. or a strip mall or just something random because what else is a going red on robin. a red oh man red robin haven't been to red robin in a while that's we used to go there every Valentine's Day, but then we stopped because we're in our 30s and it made us feel sick. So we gave it up. <laughs> All right. So, oh, um, man. Well, one I I, got, yes. Oh, go ahead. No, I was one that I thought was interesting was um, there's a new article about religious dating apps by Peggy Fletcher Stack um, in the Trib. And the Queen. Hallowed be her name. And. <laughs> Uh, this is a very interesting thing in the Mormon world because so I, I'm single, I'm in my thirties. I have a lot of friends who are in the same boat as me and they're in various stages of activity and less activity within the church. And a lot of them, they want to use mutual, which is kind of the LDS specific dating app. Because even though they're not active and they're not interested in becoming active, they want to be with someone who has similar roots. They still value their roots and kind of like 
the overarching principles that they were taught. They are um, Catherine Heigl Mormons, as we call yes. them. Yes. yes. Um, and they run into this issue of like people being like, well, why are you on mutual if you're not like interested in dating active members? And they're like, well, yeah, but I also want to date someone. So I know that there's a former Mormon dating app. Is there? <laughs> yeah. I think it's called ex-Mormons. Of course there is, because when you're a former Mormon, it basically becomes a religion unto itself for many, right. unfortunately. It's uh, okay. That's funny. Because yes. mutual mutual doesn't have anywhere in your profile where you designate your your personally identified activity level or anything, right? Ooh, I don't think they do. I haven't been on it in a little over a year, so I'm not sure. But the oh, it's called post um post-Mormon. Oh dang it, I just post-Mormon match. Oh, how cute! Yeah, I would love. Well, that's to also understand. It's also understandable, it. though, because there there are many people who leaving the church is a painful, difficult experience for a, a number of reasons. Uh, I think it's unfortunate, but we understand it, mm-hmm. and they also want to probably be with someone who understands what that's all about for them. Which so it's com- it's completely understandable. Yeah, and I yeah. I think we you know in the past we used to hear a lot of people saying like oh they can leave the church, but they can never leave it alone. And I just think, well, like, yeah, it's like a huge part of who they are. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what, what do you want from them? Um, and yes, like there's a lot of hurt, but I, I have a lot of people know a lot of people who will always say like, yeah, I'm a Mormon. It's a huge part of me. Um, but I'm not interested in, you know, being actively involved with the church because of, I disagree with, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who have found a lot of peace, which is, you know, I'm really happy for them. Um, and they, but they still value their roots and their heritage from that take part in the Mormon church. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sad you haven't been on mutual for a while. I think if you were, we could do a screen share and right now we could just, you know, swipe through some people. I've played with it with, with my sister when she's visited and I think it's a hoot. No I wonder still, these apps are still I have popular. the absolute best mutual profile. I still stand by yeah. that. Yeah. It's very really simple. It just says, is there no other way? <laughs> and I just, and did, did, did you get, did you get, did you get many responses that would then finish the, the rest of the statement? No, I, I don't, or, it didn't work in my favor. No, well. no one doing Satan's lines has, has contacted you. <laughs> no, unfortunately, No. <laughs> Like, do you even want someone who who's saying what Lucifer says? Who knows? Who knows? That's uh, that's pretty fun. I was I was a little old school. If you ever heard of LDS Linkup back when that was it wasn't officially dating. It was like a Mormon Facebook. That was oh, that cool. was the jam back in the mid aughts. That was uh, mm. that was a good way to waste time when I worked at Deseret Book. That's how we spent our time when nobody was there. We had our accounts and we'd sit there and goof around on LDS. Oh my gosh, there could not be a more Mormon sentence than that. Then that's how we wasted time at working at LDS. That's fair. I'll just I'll just add on to that. We pitched membership, you know, Zion's bank accounts, and you know, worked on our downflow, and uh, it was great, good times. (laughs) All right, a couple of other. Uh, pretty much only one other quick one, maybe. The church released some extra guidance for primary, which I think is great. I've been thinking about this myself personally because primary has largely fallen by the wayside during this terrible pandemic. I think it's been a lot easier to plan Zoom meetings around our various adult classes and even for the youth. I've I know it's happened in some cases, but I've seen very few wards where primary has carried on in some really organized capacity. I mean, hopefully you have parents 
with kids and they can teach them from the come follow me manual and that's good. And like you might have your primary presidency dropping off trinkets and things and that's nice, but I've I've worried a lot about how little engagement there is. Unfortunately, so the church did release some guidance. They did stress, of course, the importance of home-centered primary, like which is good, but like I think my kids need more. I think my kids would benefit a lot from actually having sharing and singing time, even if it's once a month, right? If the singing time leader could pre-record some some stuff to work through for a song. So we know that Zoom doesn't work in real time with you know singing or anything like that. But I just hope they can do more. I worry about this a lot. Um mm-hmm. I imagine some of our listeners with kids do as well because I just feel like they're they're stranded and I'll, and we're not going to meet in second hour capacities even if your ward is meeting um, in person for sacrament meeting and a lot of wards are right now and doing it cautiously second hour type meetings are a whole different thing you've got more people crammed into smaller rooms and I don't see that changing for a long long time and that's all that primary is and so. Mm-hmm. I just hope they can do more. I know this weekend we have that big primary uh, event that's coming up. Face the name, to face. I don't think it's not called face to face. It's called um, it escapes me. It completely escapes me what it's called. I have it on my calendar. I can look at it right now. The friend to friend. Fr- it's the first ever friend to friend. Friend to friend. Not face to face. Friend to friend. Friend to friend. I will be watching that with my children. I've got two kids in primary. They gotta. They gotta be up on that. All right. We've had some good stuff here. Um, I really want to talk about your book though, Rosie. I love this book. I love that you wrote this book. I think this fills a sorely needed hole that I am surprised like has existed in the first place for so long, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, so tell us a little bit about House of Light, your guide to the temple. What is it and why is it? So House of Light is like a digital download study guide. Uh, it's a, I say temple prep, but I like not in the sense that it's only for people preparing to go to the temple for the first time. Um, There are definitely aspects of it to prepare people going for the first time. Like there is a walkthrough experience where I essentially just say, okay, I'm going to hold your hand digitally and I'm going to talk you through what happens from when you enter the doors to when you leave, because there's so much anxiety on the first visit of simply like, what's going to happen? Like, where am I being led? Who am I going to talk to? And none of that is secret. Um, None of that is stuff you can't talk about. Um, And if someone can just be told, it's a much calmer experience when you go for the first time, when you just kind of have some type of frame of reference. So that's the first part. And then, but the bulk of it is studies of important temple principles like the fall, the atonement, creation, and the covenant covenants that you make in the temple. When I went through the temple, I was told over and over like, oh, it's all in the scriptures. And I was like, where? And then, you know, a few like BYU classes I went to, the teacher kind of like wink and nodded as he listed the temple covenants and doctrine covenants and that kind of stuff. But nowhere could I find them just saying like, these are the covenants that you make these are the scriptures associated. Like there's just no resources attached to it. So I decided that I was going to make it. Um, Elder Bednar and other leaders have made comments recently saying like, we need to be better prepared, preparing our people. Um, And I felt like I was totally within the appropriate bounds. Um, And so it's really designed to give people opportunities to think like, okay, what do these covenants mean to me? What am I doing this week? How can I improve in my life actually? 
better? How can I actively live my covenants rather than every time I go, I'm reminded like, oh yeah, that's what it is. Um, but it can just have, people can have a deeper well of personal revelation to draw from. And luckily, you know, just two weeks before I released the book, the church updated the handbook listing the covenants. I was about to ask you about this. Yeah. Which I is mean, very convenient for me, for sure. And I was going to ask, so obviously, obviously, you working on this book predates them doing that. And I'm assuming you had no one giving you a heads up, like, hey, Rosie, this is dropping. The church is changing it. So like, before you did that, were you concerned that you might get pushback from members for discussing the covenants too openly? You know, And uh, if you had different reactions since the, the handbook was updated? Um, I knew that there might be some who would feel uncomfortable. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't even realize how much the church has published as far as like pictures of garments and the temple robes. And they've shown a lot, um, but there's still people that feel like you can't say anything about the temple. And it's just kind of like um, just an outdated understanding of what's appropriate. Um, So I knew there would be pushback, but I also felt very confident in my understanding that it was okay to talk about. You know, the temple script is very specific about certain things that we should not reveal or talk about. Um, And I choose to kind of say like, okay, they are saying, don't talk about that. Be reverent when you talk about everything else. Um, And so that was the approach that I took. And it is in the scriptures. Um, I just kind of condensed and brought it together in an organized fashion. Um, so I knew there would be some pushback. I felt confident in being able to defend my position. Um, and when they released that update, really just like 10 days before I released House of Light, it was just so convenient. The That's probably a rel- more of a relief than anything. I would yeah, yeah, it's just easy yeah. to say, oh, it's actually in the handbook. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think that must be so funny. Did you work with, uh, did you have any coordination with the temple department or with the church in doing this? Since you said, you know, like you've, you've studied it out, you've seen, you didn't assume you were going to be crossing any boundaries. And I don't think you haven't by any means, yeah. but you didn't work. No, I mean, I, um, you know, I worked on it for the past year. So basically all of 2020, um, lots of conversations with temple workers. I'm a former Salt Lake temple worker. Um, uh, conversations with people higher up at BYU and at the church. No one, you know, the church doesn't endorse official other books or things like that. So there's no like endorsement you have to seek. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I just kind of felt like, and I, I was taking the position of like, it may not be for everyone. Um, but I know a lot of people who are my peers who, Um, You know, I tell a story about a friend who, before going to the temple, was so anxious about she's going to make these covenants and she has no idea. There's no, like, there was no sense of consent um, that you were just going to kind of be sprung on it and you had to covenant to these things and it's going to be in a public setting and is that embarrassing? Is there a place where you can say no? Like, just no idea. And that gave her so much anxiety that she, you know, wound up Googling it online and reading the entire temple ceremony on some shady website. She felt horrible, but she was like, I felt backed into a corner. Like, what was Mm -hmm. I going to do? And that just to me is completely unnecessary. And so uh, I made it for people like that. And it really is a wonderful resource for, you know, none of us, well, most of us haven't been to the temple in a year now. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a great way to remember your covenant, study them, and just feel that kind of cozy temple feeling, even though it's been so long since you've actually been there. 
You know, it's funny you say that because I've actually kind of felt the same way, especially as I re- the first third or so is kind of the walkthrough guide, I would mm-hmm. say. And uh, I sort of, I felt the same way just walking through. I remember my first time, but I remember just the feeling you have when you go to the temple in general and work your way up to go through a session. And it has been a pandemic aside, like we've got young kids and it's just hard to do. And, and the DC, te- the DC temple has been closed now for, we're coming up on four years because of its renovations. So our closest temple is Philadelphia. It's not easy to go to Philadelphia on a whim, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I like that part a lot. It uh, it made me get some of the warm and fuzzies, I guess you would say. So I, I'm curious to you though, how do you think then, like you said, this is not temple prep per se, and I, I agree with that, but I also think this definitely, if you look at some of the church's publications, like there is the preparing to enter the temple article on the church's website. I think that's kind of the closest thing that you have here to your book. Mm-hmm. But I think your book differs from that, especially because the church doesn't do a, a walkthrough. Like it's always just, it just says things like, someone will be with you the whole time. You have nothing to fear, that sort of stuff, yeah. which I think is good. But I like that what you're doing gets really into the details. Like after you go to the recommend desk, you go to this person at this desk. This is why they're dressed this way. You might, when you go upstairs to change, see people coming out of other temple work wearing robes and what have you, which I think the first time I went through, I was kind of like, hey, what? I mean, I knew I, knew I was going to be wearing them, but I was like, what's going on here, folks? Hey. What is this? Uh, and as someone who struggled a lot his first time going through the temple, I think this is uh, there's a lot of value in that. I, I am curious though, do you think, how do you think temple prep, broadly speaking, has evolved? I think you said it's probably been about 10 years since you first went through the temple and mm-hmm. received your endowment. How do you think temple prep has evolved in that time? Um, I mean, I think in creating House of Light, I surveyed like hundreds of people um, and a lot of them said they felt like their temple prep experience through the church was essentially saying, this has happened for a lot of years. And so don't, it's not weird. It's it's happened for a lot of years. And they were kind of like, okay, but like, it, what did that actually prepare me for? Um, so I think a lot of temple prep is, you know, based on kind of like historical relevance and that kind of stuff but there's there's just not a lot available that is like um, kind of no nonsense clear Um, but I think there are definitely people who have great temple prep instructors who kind of take it upon themselves to um, add more meat um, more relevant information other than just kind of like the basic stuff that the church is is offering right now and hopefully um there, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future, if there is more from them. Yeah. And I think it's gotten better since I went through it. I don't feel like I was prepared at all. I feel like the temple prep class, from what I remember of it, those many years ago, it spoke, it spoke in broader terms, you know, about why we have temples and what they are, but it didn't go into detail about exactly what goes on in there and how it's going to be. So when I sat down through my first session, I mean, at first I'd already gone through the initiatory process, which that alone threw me for a loop. And if you've been through the temple in the earlier 2000s before they made some changes to that, there's additional funsies to be had there, um, but not to. I'm trying to be not trying to be flippant here, but uh, yeah, it was it was weird going mm-hmm. through the for the first time in an endowment session because you're just so little of that was discussed. I'm so thankful that the church has done better. I'm grateful for that. You know, the video they put out showing garments and temple rubs and things like that. I think it was a week before I was going to go in that my grandparents had me come over and then they showed me their temple robes. They just got them out of their little suitcases and showed them to me. That was the first anyone had even mentioned that this was a thing to me, right? Like it just wasn't discussed and it's still not as discussed as it could be. There's Um, just no frame of reference for it. It's not like anything else we do in the church. And so uh, I just, I don't, I'm surprised we don't hear about, I'm more really difficult you know, first few temple visits. And in fact, I think that there are a lot of people who do have first visits and then they 
don't really go back because it was so uncomfortable. And I just think um, a lot of that is completely unnecessary. Uh, and, and I think you note that in the book, you say the best thing you can do, you know, go back quickly and give it another shot. And I can speak to that too. I did not want to go back at all. I didn't go again before my mission then. I was like, no, this is weird. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry to be so, you know, personally anecdotal about everything. But uh, I remember I was in the MTC and when you're in the MTC, your whole district goes to the temple, you know, in Provo once a week. And I was dreading it. I was like, because mm-hmm. they say, they tell you, if you don't want to go, you know, let your branch president know and it's fine. But like realistically with the peer, you're in the MTC and who in your group's going to be like, guys, I'm not cool with this. You all have fun. Because then everyone's going to look at you like you're so, like there's something up, right? Yeah. So of course you like you know you're going to go, and right. a, we can have whole discussions on on Latter Day Saint peer pressure and all that kind of stuff. But I was dreading it, and I just I prayed a lot that I'd feel better, and it was good. You go the second time, and I wasn't hoping to go in and feel it was the greatest thing in the world, but I just felt fine, and that's the best way I could describe it. And for me, that was a huge win, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of people can be in the same boat if they're uh, if they're a little bit better prepared uh, to do yeah. so. I, and I think your story is uh, surprisingly common. Yeah, I don't think um, it's unique at all. Yeah. yeah, and and it's it's kind of like good in the sense that like you know you, no one's alone in that, but right. also it's it it doesn't need to be that way. It, we can we can help people have better experiences, um, and House of Light definitely does that. So yeah. So the back part of the book is essentially a study guide. And like you said, it's not just for preparation for going for the first time. I think anyone can reference it to th- be more more present and think about what we're doing in the temple. You had, you had one section in there. I want to ask you to maybe speak about this. You talk about the transactional view of obedience uh-huh. and why we should avoid it. Can you can you tell us about that? What do you mean by a transactional view of obedience and, and why we should avoid it? What does that mean? Um, that's something that like I felt was very highlighted when I was preparing to create the study on the law of chastity. Um, so much of the resources I was able to find, or so many of the resources were simply don't do this. So bad things don't happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately I got Dr. Julie Hanks to write that portion of the study because I felt like it really, we could use an expert's view on that. But um, yeah, just this idea that like, I'm going to do good things so I get blessings. And if I do bad things, I don't get blessings or bad things might happen to me. Um, Or, you know, this bad thing happened to me. My heavenly parents must be mad at me. I'm bad. I'm being punished. It just, it's kind of this shallow understanding, you know, like, I don't think, I don't think our heavenly father and heavenly mother want us to keep the commandments to avoid bad things or to just get blessings. I think the whole goal is that we, we want what they want, right? We, we can follow them in action, but that's not really changing our heart. Um, And so my hope in this study of the law of obedience is helping us kind of change our own hearts um, or use the atonement of Jesus Christ to change our hearts rather than just like, do good because that's what a good Mormon girl does or do good because that's what a good Mormon boy does. Makes sense. And you also talk about the difference between having faith and being faithful. I think that's an interesting study area because the two are very, very, very close together. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the difference between having faith and actually being faithful? I think, um, I think often we forget the true definition of faith that faith, if you say you have faith, you're acknowledging a lack of knowledge, right? That 
I, I have faith, therefore, I do not know all things. Um, I think in our culture, we've kind of become obsessed with saying we know things. You know, our testimonies and tes- on Fast and Testimony Sunday are, I know, I know, I know. Right. But if we know, are we having faith? Um, so, you know, when I've had different doubts and questions with the church, but I continue to stay, that to me is like one of the most faithful times of my life. Um, that even though there were things that I saw as like major red flags or big concerns, I kept moving forward. And that to me is an immense sign of faith. Um, so. That's interesting. And, yeah. and, a, and that's a tough area. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing, this is mostly just a compliment, but I like that you got to this. Um, and I'm not trying to give away the whole book, everybody, by the way, but I, but I, uh, we talk a lot about our bodies being temples. Very mm-hmm. common thing we say in Latter-day Saint culture and doctrine. Our body is a temple. That means respect the temp- your body as you would the temple. That's the main idea behind it. You know, don't get a tattoo. Don't get two ear piercings. You'll go to hell. Come on. Your body is a temple. But I like that you took this to a different area because you reminded us that temples close down. Temples wear out. Temples need to be fixed. Temples, although sacred and wonderful, are not infallible, perfect structures. When I read this, this little, it was just a little a couple sentences in a paragraph. But I thought this was a really, really brilliant parallel because you know we've even seen some of those those mini temples from the Hinckley era have had to be basically rebuilt from scratch without the church saying much about it. Like all in different capacities. My temple in DC has been closed for many years. The Salt Lake Temple is undergoing a massive renovation and being retrofitted seismologically so it doesn't come down during an earthquake. Like this is major stuff that we do. And I don't think anyone thinks twice about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think anyone looks at it and, say, and think, no, 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 no. We built a temple. The temple is God's house. We don't need to do anything to it. It's going to be protected, but we don't. And it's and I just like that you make this drew this parallel that, yeah, if our bodies are temples, we're also imperfect. We are a work in progress. We need renovation. We need to try to upgrade some of our components every now and then. I, I just, I like that you came to that. I don't know if, how you came to that idea or if you have anything you want to say about it. Yeah, um, this is, you know, the whole, our bodies, our temples are something I'm really passionate about. Um, Often that teaching, what's common is it's used in the sense of like, don't get tattoos, don't have extra ear piercing, that kind of stuff. Um, I think it can create an unhealthy narrative that this idea that like, um, your body is important because of the way that it looks. Um, and so I like to draw the comparison of temples are, in, are not important because they are pretty. That's, it's kind of irrelevant. We do it because, um, it's a way of respect. Um, and, but ultimately I say like mud and ash and tar could rain down from the sky and the exteriors of temples could be completely tarnished. And they would be no less sacred. Temples are sacred because they house sacred ordinances. Um, our bodies, our temples, they are sacred not because of the way they look, but because of what they house, spirit, children of God, and you know, the spirit of God. And, and so I think that's a really important parallel. Um, and then it makes it a lot more applicable to young men. You know, often that teaching is just mm-hmm. focused towards young women. And yeah, I mean, the Salt Lake Temple has been under renovation basically kind of constantly. Like it's True. it's always being changed, added to, you know, parts are torn down, things are built up, um, they're closed for regular cleanings. Um, and again, that can be kind of 
twisted to make it be like you always need to be working on your exterior body. That's not my hope. I, I hope it's taken us like we as people, as children of God, are always a work in progress. We are never complete. And the repentance process is ongoing and it's great and it's not a shameful thing. Yeah. Thank you. That's really good. I, this is just a question though. Totally makes sense from a practical standpoint. You discussed how it is when we go through the temple, the processes. Did you consider adding anything about how there are two temples that do live sessions and how those might differ? Because the book the book doesn't really talk much about Salt Lake or Manti, for example, because the it's a different experience when you do a live session, of course. Um, right. So I it's, think it's, that it's there's understandable that, why you wouldn't, but I think there's some talk that the live session may not be coming back in the way that it was. I've heard things like that too, which makes me sad. Yeah. It makes sense to me, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a cool part of our kind of our heritage and our history, but I'm kind of banking on the, as of now, especially since those temples are closed right now, um, everyone at this point is only doing video. Yeah. Well, especially, and then a live session is like the worst one you could do in a pandemic situation, even if you can reopen partially for any kind of, of even for proxy work and things like that. So you did that more as a a practical move for. Yeah. And also I think it's just that, um, I mean, I think it makes sense why they might get rid of live sessions with, especially considering that they're, it feels like we've gone through quite a number of changes. Obviously the temple has been changing always, but we've had, them in like close um, succession, I guess is mm-hmm. the word to say. And that's a lot to expect of what's usually an older <laughs> cast. I don't know if we could say that to have them constantly remembering massive changes. I mean, what they I mean, do that's is, a, fair. is a feat. It's quite a feat. It is. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. All these things are fair and they're understandable if it happens. I do think it'll be, have you, I mean, I've, I've done sessions in Salt Lake and Manti. Have you ever done a session in Manti? It is. Uh, I've never done a session in Manti. No, but I mean, I, Salt Lake was my first temple and my okay. normal temple. And that must be something else. That's a whole, I can't imagine what it's like to make your first time the exception in that sense, structurally. Like if you go through Salt Lake as your first time in the temple, I, I, I would have assumed knowing that I'd be like, don't, even if you're in the Salt Lake district, be like, no, just go to Bountiful for your first time through. Just watch the video. That'll be a digest it that way. But at the same time, the live session has a lot of other takeaways that I don't yeah. think always get. Uh, I'd be sad to lose it though. If you ever get down to Manti, when, if it ever comes back online, it's like Salt Lake, but even better in my opinion. I think it's the, it's the coolest live session in the church. Cool. It's, li- it's little things because in Salt Lake, you're on what the first two rooms and you just go upstairs and do the rest. In Manti, you actually progress upward between every single room slowly until you're finally at the top. There's just more symbolism there. And there's original artwork like from the pioneer era. The bench, yeah. they still have you sit on benches. Salt Lake replaced it with, you know, the flip out chairs. Oh. You're still sitting on the benches from the pioneer era in Manti. It's kind of gnarly. It's rad. It's great That's that they wild. keep it all together. Um well, we're running short on time. A couple other call-outs. I, I just want to <laughs> I want to give you love for having a quick section on how to deal with grumpy temple workers, which I think many of us have interfaced with at one point or another. I yep. I I have memories of that even as a youth. Um yeah. we're, we seem to recall a temple worker who told my one of the young men that we were doing baptisms with that he was going to go to hell. And we were like, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing a few sessions of therapy can't fix, you know? I just thought, it, but it's true. It's like that stuff we also don't talk about, about much, right? Like, yeah, pe- temple workers are humans too. 
and yeah. they're going to have bad days. They might be devoted to fulfilling their calling and rendering service, but that doesn't the mean they're always. The vast majority of them are wonderful, sweet, but you sometimes, I mean, they're people and you run into kind of a crabby person every now and then. And, and I think it's just important to address that and kind of put it into perspective and remind people like, it's just a person. They don't represent the temple. They don't represent the church. It's just a person being a little grumpy. Yeah. I do want to ask you about one quote you have here, though. You do say that beyond, there's a point in the temple, you know, you learn about garments and their purposes. And you do say, quote, beyond this teaching moment in the temple, there's no other formal instruction on the garment, referring to how to wear it, what have you. Um, how does that jive, though, with like the temple recommend questions? Because now they have that carve out when they go more into detail about- I think they've the removed that. No, they only added that in 2019. Uh, the part about mowing your lawn. They don't mention mowing the lawn specifically, but they do say in the temple recommend questions that they've added at the end, that little part at the end, where they basically say they should not be removed for any activity that could otherwise be done reasonably while wearing them. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but does that? So I was only curious because you mentioned that other than the temple, there's that there's no other part where it talks about any rules governing, for lack of a better term, uh, how yeah. we do or do not work. And I guess I, I just that see that mind. more. Um, there's nothing that says, I mean, there's a lot of, especially for women, kind of, uh, what's the word? If I want to say like... Um, Don't tuck those sleeves, Rosie. Don't you dare tuck them. Well, just like things about like, oh, it has to be next to your skin. You can't wear a bra underneath it. There's kind of traditions that have been passed yeah, on that they yeah, try yeah. to separate themselves from. I, yeah. um, and... And I think more than anything, the most important thing to emphasize is it's between you. It's it's a, it's between you and your heavenly parents. Um, and there's a especially for women and menstruation and things like that. There's a lot of more issues about right. wearing the right. garment. It gets trickier. Um, and I think it's so important to emphasize that that is a personal choice and that your heavenly parents understand you and know you, um, and that. It should between, be between the three of you. And I think that's, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's a good clarification. I mean, I found up the the line, the main line that says that, you know, the garment should be worn beneath the outer clothing. It should not be removed for activities that can reasonably be done while wearing the garment and should not be modified to accommodate different styles of clothing. I think yeah. we can all get behind that. But I think, and I do, yeah, I think- we're, uh, Did you ever have the recommend thing where they, uh, for a time, were talking about yard work? I don't remember them actually saying yard work specifically, but I feel like they must have. I mean, I've been renewing my yeah. recommend for a long time. It was, it was just like a little blip. So you may have like, it may have been within the two year span that you didn't need an interview, but <laughs> there, there, like there was a time where they were reading a little script and it specifically said like, like when doing yard work um, and listed a few times of when it was or wasn't oh. appropriate to do your to wear or remove the garment. Um, and I think it's a pro good that they've since stopped doing that. Yeah. I think that, no, I think I found what you're talking about. This used to be the old one that was there. It talks about, um, they should not remove it either partially to work in the yard or for other activities that can reasonably be done. Kind of what it says now they've just shortened it, but you should not, they remove it to lounge around the home in swimwear or in modest clothing. I remember, I remember all this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And when they must remove it for swimming, they should put it back on as soon as possible. So, folks, pool day doesn't mean pool day. All right. And you're getting out to get a soda or a hot dog. <laughs> I want those back you, on. You change first, everyone. <laughs> you, you pull them on onto your soggy body right Absolutely. away. 
Well, I've enjoyed this. One, one other thing. Gosh, I've enjoyed this book so much. I love that you made a point to, to... I didn't think about this. The sealing ordinance is the only ordinance you can do proxy work for before making the covenant yourself. I just had never... That had never processed in my mind. I, I did it before I was married as well. Yeah. And I don't think it ever crossed my mind that you're allowed to do that. That's kind of, I wonder if that's... Has it always been that way? Is that out of practicality? I don't know. I just think that's great. Yeah. That's and great. I think it's important to highlight that like... Um, you can serve within, within any capacity that you feel comfortable. Some women don't feel comfortable or men when they're single um, being proxy for a couple, but they're comfortable serving yeah. as a child. Sure. Um, or you can if you want to. You don't have to be sealed to someone in order to be proxy in a ceiling as a husband or wife. Um, and I think it's a truly like wonderful opportunity to serve others in a way that you can't um, – they can't do that for themselves. You can't do that for yourself. Um, it's the one covenant that you can't just say like, I'm ready for it. Sign me up. I'm going to go make that covenant. It's obviously very contingent upon other things. And so I, as a single adult, have found a lot of sacred opportunities to go and serve other women in that capacity um, in a way that, you know, I'm not able to do for myself. It's a good That's opportunity. Good that's mm-hmm. a good insight. And obviously, everyone, that's a great first date. If you've never done it, you go and do the ceilings together. Um, then you'll know because if you don't feel you know. the spirit right then, you just move on. It's it's a, yeah. it, it cuts the chatter. Mm-hmm. It's a good time. So everyone, we're going to link to this book. It's like Rosie said, it's a digital download, digital companion. Um, you can buy it over at the, I believe, the QNOR website, if I'm not mistaken. Is it for sale on Amazon or anything or strictly a QNOR? No, just at QNOR. Strictly QNOR. So please, please buy it there and uh, please respect that it's easy to share things digitally, but don't like pirate the book, you know, to others, right. You know, buy your copy. Right. Remember um, you're honest in your fellow, your dealings with your fellow men as you. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So remember that's house of light, your guide to the temple link will be up with this episode of this week in Mormons at this week in Mormons.com. We hope you'll join us at that website. And every week as we do this fabulous, wonderful show. And if you haven't supported us on Patreon yet, P A T R E O N.com slash this week in Mormons, two bucks a month, help us keep the lights on super easy. You're not buying that mochaccino anyway, and you shouldn't be buying it anyway anyway, but you know what I mean. You've got the, everyone's fine. The pandemic's been easy for everybody. So thanks for all your help, everybody. Appreciate you joining us all the time. I would love to thank Rosie Card for telling us about her book, doing the news with us. Rosie, it's been really nice to have you back here with us once more. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. And everyone, until then, we'll have another episode next week. Be well, be holy, and be happy. Bye-bye.